Mayor Paul, David Paul, Pennsylvania. Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, December 15, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, New Testament Part, taking up Great Clock, Chapter 10, the New Testament, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Any of you want to ask anything about the previous part before we leave it forever? Now, goats are each separate 
pretty poor food, you know. Get any film except outdated film that um, 
was available at that time in Jerusalem already he had, and couldn't get any new films that was fresh, so he figured the pictures might be a failure. But they turned out all right. The film often was somewhat longer than the big thing on the box. And he photographed uh, not the whole business, but the uh, portion of it. And in all the photos to Johns Hopkins University, to Dr. William Foxwell Albright, the Dean of American Biblical Archaeologists, now deceased, but at that time living. And Albright pronounced them genuine and said it was the greatest manuscript find of a hundred years. Some other scholars uh, were quick to say it was a hoax or a joke or a fake, but Albright, uh, a greater scholar than any of them, said they were genuine. And the later uh, opinion came around to that, and the people who were so quick to claim it was a hoax or a trick or something sort of packed down and weren't heard from so much and finally quieted down completely. And so uh, these came to be recognized as of great importance. Now what was found was in the first place a complete manuscript of the entire book of Isaiah. The whole 66 chapters complete except for a couple of verses missing in the middle of the book. And uh, the outside of the scroll, which is on antelope skin, and the piece is about uh, 14 or 18 inches long stitch where the joints are. And this uh, the outside of the roll was travel from wear and tear and therefore again, but the inside was okay. Later they found another manuscript of Isaiah, not quite complete, but almost again. And still later, parts of all biblical books except Esther, some only fragments and some uh, complete books, also found commentaries on Old Testament books. And uh, then uh, the rules and regulations of this strange Jewish sexual order. Now, um, to get geographic, you know something about this sect that uh, Dr. Blakelock assumes they know all this, and he doesn't say too much about it, but this was a super strict sect of the Jews who considered the ordinary Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem too liberal. And the, the Sadducees, of course, they were uh, rationalistic and, and greatly influenced by Greek philosophy. They were skeptical. But the Pharisees, who were not skeptical and who believed in uh, miracles and the supernatural and angels and so forth, still um, were not religious enough to suit this bunch. So they expected that the end of the world was coming very soon, and to get ready for this, they went out to the edge of nowhere, the Dead Sea region, not too many miles from Jerusalem, but across the rugged uh, desolate, rocky, uh, uninhabited terrain, and set up the Qumran community, G-U-M-R-A-N, Qumran, on the northeast shore of the Big Sea, on the top of a bluff or a cliff. And here they got ready for the impending end of the world. Now, of course, the end of the world didn't come. Uh, it came for them when the Roman armies um, destroyed the place, and they had to stay in an awful hurry. And apparently they were able to escape with their lives, some of them to Damascus, that is to other places, and were able to hide their writings in the caves. These people didn't live in the caves. They used these caves as a security place, a safety deposit box, to hide their writings in when they had to flee from the 
attacking Roman legions who were mopping up the country after the great Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 68 to 70, which was the end of the world for them at that time. And um, the Romans, and any Jewish sect, they considered their enemies. They wouldn't stop to interview them or assassinate something so them if they found them and destroy everything. But these writings were their most precious possessions, were saved and um, in the caves, and there they lay from 70 about A.D. till 1947 A.D. That's uh, roughly uh, almost 1900 years in those caves when they were accidentally discovered by this settler. Now, later, uh, the word of this got around, and uh, people began poking in those caves, uh, not only this first cave, but there were about 20 others in the area. And a lot of amateurs who had no training for it began poking around there and kind of explore everything. And uh, so the Jordan government, which was part of the kingdom of Jordan at that time, taken over, I believe, by Israel today, but the Jordan government, um, that's the fear of the law, and the people and posted guards, and we had to be properly accredited to search around the Dead Sea area for ancient manuscripts. And the Jordan government fixed a price for fragments of manuscripts to stop the uh, old inflationary backbone bidding on these among antique dealers. So much for square inch. Dr. Trevor, when he was here, said that, that he was raising money, that there was a good bit of this stuff in the hands of antique dealers and the Arabs who had discovered it. And they're not going to give it away free just in the interest of learning and scholarship. You have to buy it. So much for square inch, regardless of uh, whether it's very valuable or relatively insignificant, it goes by the square inch. And then, so uh, they're continually assembling walls with some of them little pieces, no bigger than a uh, dollar bill, and others no bigger than a postage stamp. And the trigger on his ear, he had exhibits of pictures, and he had flags, and so very interesting. And laid out on a big table, like uh, working an enormous jigsaw puzzle. And people sitting around there, and this is a joint effort, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. Here's one thing we can all agree on. The Dead Sea Scrolls ought to be pieced together again and not left in fragments, so they're collaborating on this. And then somebody's got a piece here, and he's walking around this table looking for a piece that'll fit that. And when he gets it, why, those are put together under a piece of plastic or glass plate, and he looks for metal. And this is very slow and laborious and rather boring and monotonous, but it's the only way to do it. They have put whole, whole manuscripts, whole scrolls together by, uh, with relatively few pieces missing, by this the painstaking process of fiction science. And uh, so this is going on. Then uh, later on, part of these scrolls somehow got in the hands of the Let's see. Um, nobody knows who got a hold of them, but there was an ad published in the New York Times offering them for sale for something like a half a million dollars. And uh, how this was done, and took a business about it, but the Jewish interest raised the money and bought them, the ones that were advertised in the New York Times for sale. Didn't get a name, it gave a box number. New York Times, so you could go and test with the people that had these scrolls. And uh, the Jewish uh, Israeli government bought them. 
and he built a fine building for them called the Shrine of the Book, which is now in Jerusalem. And uh, it's a beautiful little park around it. It's a nice place. And um, there they are kept under control conditions of temperature, humidity, air conditioning, and uh, with the proper safeguards against theft or mistreatment of any of them. And as no materials are discovered, do they go in there with the formal ones. So they're in the hands of educated people, even though, unfortunately, they aren't exactly cosmetics, but they're still uh, they're taking care of these folks. They aren't uh, Christians at all. They're Jewish, but um, they're not going to know about this. Anybody with any credentials can go in there and work among them, and anybody can go and see them. And uh, among other things, they found this copper scroll. I think the geographic describes it. This thing was on very thin copper, rolled up. And the copper is a metal that corrodes easily. And uh, when they tried to unroll it, it would just break off and break off. And try to unroll a half an inch, and it would just break off like that. So they quit trying to unroll it. They were completely ruining it. And it, was, it baffled everybody how to get this thing unrolled without ruining it completely. And it was sent to England, and a technician, I believe, in one university in England, found a way to do it. He sprayed it with plastic, the offline. Then he took a dentist drill, and uh, like a little thing, said stuff. And, and, and cut off one little piece, about as big as a sheet of paper, maybe, and uh, laid that out on the grass, then sprayed more plastic and cut off another little piece. You see, this, this gave it a little resilience and, and uh, held it so that it wouldn't just break off when you went to unroll it and flatten it out. And in this way, he finally got the whole thing unrolled. In, in sections, of course, but it could be read. And boxed on very thin copper, which had almost corroded away to. Um, Copper sulfate or something like this is green, green, instead of gray, and it's copper metal. And when I read this, anybody know what, what was in this copper scroll? Well, this is, this is changing the fiction. This told about tons and tons and tons of gold and silver hid in the hole. Nobody has ever found an ounce of it. And there's just tons of it. And some wonder, is this really the treasure that they hid together away from the Romans when everything was starting to crash over their heads? Or was this a, a hoax to send the Romans on a wild goose chase and make fools of them? Or what? And all the landmarks were given in this, exactly where to find it. You go to the palm tree, and you go 60 steps to the gooseberry bush, and so on. And uh, to the big stone. And not a one of these landmarks can be identified today, and so nobody has, has ever found a bit of this treasure. If there really is any, it will probably be discovered someday, not by taking uh, out the long vanished uh, landmarks, but by the use of electronic metal detectors, which are sensitive, like your Geiger counter, and then you can buy with sophisticated equipment if you have a couple hundred dollars more to spend. And it will uh, register when you go over something that is made of metal. And uh, this it may be discovered in this way someday. You know, I bought a, uh, from the Harrisburg Land Office, a warranty uh, track map of uh, Union Township, Cuyahoga County, where my brother and I own some property. This shows how this was divided up when it was first taken over from the Indians, 1793 and 1794. And who got the, the land? And here it is 
given what to say. There is no. So many rods to the sugar maple. Then so many rods say to the beech tree. And so many rods to a pile of stone. All this marked on this is a photograph of the original survey uh, on record in the land office in Harrisburg. And was brought up by iron speculators and the fellow that brought this piece was a fellow named John Vaughn. And listen, I'll tell you the endless secret about early American history in Pennsylvania. Robert Morris, for whom a college is named, says a land speculator, one of the signers, if the Declaration of Independence is displeased, a great American patriot and everything, everything, he was in jail for a while for land fraud on the speculative and fraudulent land deals involving hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands at least of acres in northern Pennsylvania. This, the present administration of Robert Morris College, is first not to have mentioned. <laughs> now, all right, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is the story of a mysterious story. And in the library, there's a book called The Romance of the Copper Scrolls, written by this fellow, John Allegro, who's been... Um, Ideas on the Dead Sea Scrolls religiously are phony. He said that they would require Christianity to be completely rewritten, and this is all nonsense and not at all. But uh, this story about the romance of the Copper Scroll, a whole book just on it, many pictures, you'll find in the library, and it's well worth uh, half an hour to look through and see what's in it. Now, um, Blakehoff mentions a new discovery. They've been discovering books and fragments all the time. Question 131 here. A new discovery made just very lately, actually 1967. This was the time of the great uh, Six-Day War against Israel and Egypt, Israel and the Arabs. And uh, this scroll dated um, within a 50-year span, 50 B.C. To, to the year zero, the beginning of the Christian era. Although he says it may be a copy of something much older. You see, when you see a manuscript, two questions involved. How old is this manuscript? And then how old is the work that it's a manuscript of? A manuscript of, let's say, the book of Matthew may come from the year 500 AD, but Matthew was written in the first century, and this is a copy. So it is possible that this scroll is from an earlier period, but the the, the writing of it, created by the uh, style of uh, handwriting, which is quite definite on this kind of thing, uh, indicates the uh, first 50 years before Christ, the 50 years to be going on. And he um, uh, says, this world is written as if God were speaking. Somebody wrote a piece like this in the news tribune and signed it, God. And then uh, had a lot of comments. I don't know who it was, but the other kid was the sound God at the end. I doubt if we should, uh, it sounds to me a little bit profane, but something like taking the name of God in vain for anybody to sort of monopolize the name of God and presume that I don't think anybody would, would, would venture to do that. But this fellow did. But this fellow was written like that, as if God was speaking. Now, it's interesting, and scholars are fascinated by it and everything, but um, what is the value or importance of it for Christianity? There's a good question for everybody in this one. Well, uh, does it have any? Mr. 
long or bad. No value or importance whatever. Now let's get this case to start with. Allegro is, um, when he dies and goes to heaven, if he does there, which I of course certainly hope, he's going to learn better. <laughs> The Dead Sea Scrolls have absolutely no direct bearing on Christianity. They have a background bearing on Christianity only. And they show us something about the climate of religious thinking of the Jewish world since before the time when Christianity originated. And in this way, they have a background bearing on it. This is part of the Jewish thing. Uh, the curtain back of the stage, let's say, in front of which Christianity originated. But as for any direct bearing, for instance, any mention anywhere in the Red Sea writings of anything in the, in, the, in the New Testament, it just isn't there. And most of the writings are from a little bit before the time of Jesus, uh, maybe a few years before. So uh, there's no direct bearing of it at all. And other discoveries of recent years are all business. It is not without its value to us, it has a value especially for critical Old Testament study. But as for any idea that this is going to cause us to uh, have second thoughts about the, the main content of Christianity or anything like that, that's pure foolishness. There's nothing to it at all. Now, um, I think the answer to 133 and 134. And here's 135, this uh, Russian youth magazine and the Russian youth organization comes from a bad problem, problem means truth. How can people that don't believe in truth call a paper truth? Well, uh, if you believe in, in Marxist dialectical materialism, can you really believe in truth? Truth has meaning only if there are values that transcend the material. But the main Russian newspaper is called Pravda, and the main Russian newspaper is called Komsomolskaya Pravda. And this paper said that the Dead Sea Scrolls have proved that Jesus Christ never lived. Now, who's going to be impressed by a claim like that? Mr. Brady. Mrs. O'Hare. Well, this reminds me of uh, uh, what's his name? Schultz's cartoon of a teenage lad on the floor in front of the TV with his father uh, open and his girlfriend tries to get his attention and he says, Don't bother me. I'm looking for scripture text to prove what I already believe. Uh, I don't think Mrs. O'Hare is important. I just counted one of the greatest blessings that God has conferred on me that I am not Mr. Over. <laughs> For this, I am most devoutly thankful. <laughs> I think she would be a very difficult person to live with, especially in these days when it's no longer considered good marriage to beat you up. Now, <laughs> and I tell you, I think Mrs. Over is an attention craver. I think this lady lives like craving attention. Am I too hard on her? I think this is her lifestyle. Uh, she, she, she feeds on it. Just like some people get comfortable by telling their symptoms and describing their operations when they were in the hospital to other people. This is uh, sort of feeds your ego. Well, um, 
the Jehovah's Witnesses come around and talk to you about ancient Greek manuscripts, let me say this impresses nobody except those that know us from Hebrew. You know, as the major, you can be impressed. There were two young Baptist seminary students in New York City that entered an ad in the paper. They lived in an apartment and were going to a biblical seminary in New York, and they entered an ad in the paper, and two Jehovah's Witnesses called on them and spent one evening there. And these two fellows, the same woman, feigned themselves to be honest in prayers after truth and made an appointment for a second evening to be instructed in the truth of the law, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the second evening, the two witnesses came, but these two Baptist students had a professor at Hebrew from the biblical seminary there, too. And this man asked them two questions, and they put their stuff back in the briefcase and left. <laughs> they impressed people with no less than they do. They're Boasted knowledge is phony. Their reference to Greek manuscripts and so forth is phony. They, um, some obscure manuscripts from the 1300s which have no importance at all and give uh, thousand indications of careless copying. If they can find one verse in there that seems to support one idea of the Jehovah's Witnesses, then they build this up as the great manuscript discovery. There's a really important manuscripts like the Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus and so forth don't support that at all. Now that's the Jehovah's Witnesses. And don't waste your time talking to them because um, you won't find anything worthwhile from them. They'll only, uh, only be worthy. Mr. Harris. Well, um, we have uh, serious and um, Christianly written books and, and booklets on this. If you'll come in my office, I'll, I'll show you some that, um, that deal with this seriously and, and on a biblical basis. I don't think, of course, I was getting rather facetious here. I don't think you can answer them by just brushing it off and, and, and wisecracking about it. I mean, not for anybody that's influenced by it. And um, there are serious discussions of it that are, um, well, these two Baptist students that I spoke about, their names were Martin and Clant, K-O-A-W-N, and, and the other one's named Martin. They wrote a book called Jehovah of the Watchtower. There was a woman came to our door here, college show one summer night, and she uh, had some of their stuff that she was selling for 10 cents, I believe, and so I answered the door, and went to the front door, and there she was with this stuff. She's our name, you know, Reverend Sonsoff on the nameplate. And uh, I said, have you read Jehovah of the Watchtower by Martin and Clance? She said, yes, isn't it wonderful? I said, it sure is. It shows the heresies of Jehovah's Witnesses and shows the whole thing to be a made-up story of untruth. Oh, that book, it's nothing but a tissue of lies from beginning to end. I'm sure she hasn't even seen it. But this book is... Uh, very illuminating. Now, this was founded by uh, Pastor Russell. It wasn't a pastor, incidentally. At one time, he attended the Sunday school or Sabbath school of the Allegheny Reformed Presbyterian Church, Northside Pittsburgh. And uh, so uh, he didn't stay with us, though. <laughs> pastor Russell, he was also in prison for a term during World War One for. Uh, persuading people to uh, evade the draft law. And um, he was um, 
he, there's a big lawsuit in Canada about him, which he lost, which the Toronto newspaper won against him. He was succeeded by Judge Rutherford, who wasn't a judge. Pastor Russell, who wasn't a pastor, and Judge Rutherford, who wasn't a judge, and he's dead too now, and somebody else. But we have serious literature on this that is not calculated to anger people, but it's possible to win them, that deals with this um, on a um, truly biblical basis. Now, uh, Mr. Mayor, what was yours? The name of what? Well, um, they are Unitarians. They do not believe in the deity of Christ. They do not believe in hell. This is one of the main drawing cards. Uh, uh, hell is, um, if there is such a thing as any retribution after death, it's only temporary. They believe in um, the imminent second coming of Christ and that millions now living will never die. This, of course, is a possible belief. Only they decided the millions are differently than what we would. But uh, chiefly, uh, they regard all churches, Protestant and Catholic, as of the devil, and only Jehovah's Witnesses are the true church, and that real Christianity was lost and forgotten for centuries until Pastor Russell rediscovered it, and they don't call their assemblies a church, they call it a kingdom hall. And some places, uh, old patriotic organizations, they won't salute the U.S. flag either, and the Supreme Court has ruled that they don't have to. But to some patriotic organizations have um, overreacted to this by burning their kingdom halls down. This makes martyrs of them. It's the worst thing in the world to do. Much better to just let them alone. But the kingdom hall, and there's one in New Brighton right after you cross the bridge. You can see it there on the road. And all churches whatsoever are Babylon and under the curse and of the devil. And they only are the two churches. Now, Martin and Klein in their book, I'll come back to the Dead Sea Schools in a minute, but this is worth your while. We ought to have a course on these modern cults in Geneva. Um, they, they, uh, Martin and Klein showed almost no Jehovah's Witnesses are college graduates. And many of them have never been through high school. And most of them are former members in old line churches who have gotten sore about something. They were not elected to be an officer or they were disciplined because of misconduct or something like this and have gotten in a huff and left. Probably with their lack of education, they were not really qualified to be an officer, but they had this ambition. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses immediately makes them feel important. They're a part of the uh, world revolutionary movement that signals the coming age and the Everything they suffer is going to count just oodles for them in rewards in the age to come. And they feel they get this, this martyr complex and this complex of being uh, heroic witnesses for an unpopular cause. And this is, this is what gives them their death. And um, on the other hand, uh, only a very few at the very top have real education. <laughs> They have gotten out their own translation of the whole Bible, very attractively put up too, but uh, incorporating numerous um, phony translations. Just to give you one, the Gospel of John at the beginning. And the King James Version, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made which was made. Now that you're familiar with that passage. In Greek, theos ain hologos. The word was God. They translate this, the word was a God, and spelled God there with a small g. Now, grammatically, you could do this because Greek does not have a definite article, but you cannot really do this because very obviously the Gospel of John originated in Jewish circles, and John the author was a Jew, the most uh, rigid and strict monotheist that the world ever knew. We didn't go talking around about a God, small g. Therefore, although grammatically, the Greek wording there could be either God, capital G, or a God, small g, if you take into account who wrote this and when and where it was written, it comes out of the strictest monotheistic system the world ever knew, the later Judaism, the time of Christ, it has to be translated, the word was God. Now this is in line with their denying that Christ is, they don't believe that Christ is more than a man. Do you have a question, Mrs. Wilson? Uh, no, I was going to say that when you come across the indefinite to prove that Christ already came in 1913, but it's just to the eye of understanding or something, and this is the sign of the Gentile. Yeah, well, they, they uh, deal in this kind of thing. I remember when I was a freshman at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, I went to one year. And it was a big ad in the paper, it was a Jehovah's Witness meeting in a hotel downtown. That was the afternoon, so I thought I'd go to this, and I went, and there they were speaking, and uh, showing a book at the door afterwards, and uh, usual Jehovah's Witness line, Russell Weiss is the common name for this sect after Pastor Russell. I asked them a question or two about um, scripture text. You see, they believe in um, soul sleep, the dead are as if they were not until the resurrection. This guy looks at me and says, have you ever studied Hebrew? I said, no. No, I, I don't think he had either, but uh, I was only a college freshman. you ever studied Hebrew? Nope. Well, if you just learn Hebrew now, you'll see that the Hebrew text supports our belief here. And then they were selling this book, and it was a word-for-word and verse-by-verse commentary on Ezekiel and Daniel, explaining all the mysteries and difficulties in these two extremely difficult books of Scripture and Revelation. I forgot. All right, um, now then, to come back to the Dead Sea Scrolls a little bit. The teacher of righteousness. Who is this? A figure mentioned in uh, those scrolls that are not biblical manuscripts, but that deal with the organization and, uh, and structure of this uh, Jewish superscript community. Teacher of righteousness. Anything known about who he was? Mr. Brown? Yeah. Now, some wild-eyed thinkers have said this is Jesus Christ, and that the Dead Sea Scrolls, a somewhat blurred and very mysterious and obscure portrait of the teacher of righteousness, is the authentic, and that the picture of Jesus in the New Testament is a distorted legend based on it. Now, this is known as putting the donkey cart ahead of the donkey. And uh, turning things clear around. Probably the head of this, very likely a Pharisee, similar to uh, old Nicodemus or Gamaliel, who got uh, stricter ideas about, let's say, righteous and holy living, and considered the Jerusalem Jews somewhat worldly and money minded, maybe, 
and went out and founded this community with others of like mind. The community was made up of women as well as men, and uh, in the cemetery they found a number of graves of children. This uh, has been held to mean that they were not celibates but practiced marriage. It has also been explained by saying these are children whom they adopted, that like the uh, Harmony people that had old economy south of here, that they were celibates, they didn't marry, have any sex relations at all, but they uh, kept their community up by adopting children. And when this began to fail, the thing died out. So, uh, question, Mr. Harris. Yeah. Well, they're going to live uh, as if they weren't married, but but actually were married. The graves and skeletons of men and women both found there, and some children. So it is possible these were children that were brought in when these people first came here and joined up, or that uh, they were children that had been adopted into the community. Now, exactly who this teacher of righteousness was is not known, and uh, perhaps will be discovered someday. But certainly, it wasn't Jesus Christ. And now the other figure that is. Mentioned over and over in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the wicked priest. Now let me ask, can a priest be wicked? Well, I suppose he can. And this figure, the wicked priest, has also not been really identified, but uh, there's a strong opinion, which uh, nothing is against and much for, that this was Alexander Janius, one of the successors of Judas Maccabeus, you recall Bible 102 back there in early history? Uh, there was one assignment in that about the Maccabean period between the Old and New Testament when Judas Maccabeus, Judas the hammer, you know, hit him again, harder, harder. That's Judas, a great freedom fighter of the Jews and a godly man. Judas Maccabeus, Judas the hammer. The Maccabeans were heroes and freedom fighters and men of faith and, and devotion, but their successors, Tended to deteriorate. And a couple, three generations down, there came to be this man, Alexander Janius, descended from the original Maccabean family, who became their high priest and really their ruler. This man was so bad, he had 800 Pharisees crucified all at one time because they were of the wrong party. And this introduced this barbaric mode of death, which was originally not Jewish, to the Jews. According to the law of Moses, somebody to be put to death was to be stoned. And as an added disgrace, his body could be hung up on a tree for sundown only, and then had to be removed. But Alexander Genius had 800 Pharisees crucified. You wonder they called him the wicked priest. And the trouble is, very likely they were much better men than he was. All right, now, um, are some of you coming Friday? I am. Let's have a show of hands a minute. I'm in the book. I'm in the time. One, two, three.
a happy new year. You can take that over vacation and bring it back and somebody else can get it on uh, January 4th. We meet again, the Lord willing, in this place.